Well, my name is Roger Poupart. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, and I say that because I've been gone on vacation and uh, then a few additional weeks after my wife fell and broke her arm. And so I appreciate all the prayers y'all have been praying for her. She's healing well, but uh, we've had a great summer series with our other pastors uh, covering conversations with Jesus, various encounters, and so I know you were blessed by that as I was. Well, today we're beginning a series in the book of Daniel, and Daniel is about three-quarters of the way into the Old Testament. If you come to Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Now, many think of Daniel as being a book of prophecy, which it is because it contains uh, prophecies that have been fulfilled in the past as well as some that are to come in the end times. I've been getting uh, more than a question a week uh, right now in the times in which we live about the end times. Are we in them? What's going on? And uh, now while Daniel is also uh, not just a prophetic book, it's a book of prayer. So if you're somebody saying, Roger, I don't like the end times. I don't like eschatology. Those are things that are not that uh, edifying for me to study. Well, Daniel is a book for you as well, because as I said, it talks about prayer. And another timely aspect about Daniel is it speaks about how to live for God in a culture that does not honor God. We're in a time where we're seeing God has been forgotten. We're in a time where being a believer is difficult under some of the things happening in the world around us. And Daniel is set in a time where we're going to see those who live for God in a godless culture. The first six chapters of Daniel center around a story of four young men who were carried away from Judah to Babylon. And so as we go through this book, it's going to be a timely study for those who find themselves surrounded by what seems like a godly crowd. If you feel like you're getting pressure from coworkers or family members or as school starts back up to go along with the crowd and forget God, the book of Daniel will help us to live our lives for the Lord. So I invite you to turn with me now to to Daniel chapter 1, and I want to read the first two verses which set the stage for us. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury, of his God. Now, as we're told about this, which is the conquest of Judah, it's important to see this isn't an accident, or this isn't a case where the foreign gods of Babylon were more powerful than Yahweh, than Jehovah in heaven. It tells us plainly here in verse 2 that God caused this to happen. He sends the Chaldeans to carry the people of Judah away into captivity. Now, as you will recall from your studies in the scriptures, the nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms. You had the ten northern tribes that made up uh, what was then called the kingdom of Israel, and then the southern tribes were the, the kingdom of Judah. In Israel, the ten northern tribes had been carried away into captivity by the Assyrians more than 100 years earlier. And now the kingdom of Judah is, is being carried away into captivity. And this is something that God warned the people about. He had sent his prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, to warn the the people of Judah that unless you give the land its sabbatical rest, unless you turn to me and trust in me rather than your alliances with the foreign powers, 
you will go into captivity. You see, Jehoiakim had formed an alliance with Necho, Pharaoh of Egypt. He was trusting in, in Egypt to safeguard them from the Babylonians. And what God did was he sent the Babylonians in to conquer Egypt. And now the Jews are next. And Daniel tells us this happened in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Now, if you read Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1, it says it took place in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And so some people will say, well, see, the Bible contradicts itself. Is it the third year or is it the fourth year? Is this a mistake? Is it a contradiction? What's going on? This isn't a mistake. What's, what's happening here is tied to the cultural context. You see, Jeremiah was a prophet who was writing to the Jews exclusively. Daniel was writing both for Jews and Gentiles. And so when you look at the original text, there's a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles for Daniel. In fact, the, the text is written in a dual language. Daniel chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 4, as well as when we get to chapters 8 through 12, were written in Hebrew. And the rest of the book is written in Aramaic. Now, Aramaic was the diplomatic language of the day. It was for the, uh, not just Jews, but for the Gentiles and others. And so what Daniel does, being schooled in the Babylonian culture and chronology, is he writes this letter following the Babylonian system. Under the Jewish system, you counted the first or the ascension year of the king in dating. And then under the Babylonian system, you didn't do the first. And that's why we have this difference in the third or the fourth year. In both instances, the year is 605 B.C., which history tells us is the first of three invasions that happened to Judah. Now, I say the first of three because the Babylonians, when they went in and conquered Judah, initially did not wipe the entire place out. What they did was they said, you guys have been rebelling. You've been trusting in the Egyptians and other things, so we're going to give you a warning. And they came in and they carried away the, the, the leading noblemen, the citizens of the city, the cream of the crop. And then they also took some of the valuable things of the city, like the vessels of, of God's house. Verses 3 through 7 tell us, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in which whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine in which he drank. And he appointed that they should be educated three years, and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So what happens is they've carried these captives away and included in the group are these four young men we're just told about. And as I said, they're the cream of the crop. They've kind of risen to the top. These are the best of the best. And so they're sent away to a a kind of Babylonian university. They're sent to a place to learn the language, the culture, the ways to be trained for political service in this uh, court of Nebuchadnezzar. And while the course of study would have been difficult, the way they're treated is not. Because what we're told here is they're not beaten into submission, but they're bought by the luxuries that are being given. Instead of persecution, they're given privileges that include being fed from the king's choice food and wine. Now, not only was the food exquisite, but the surroundings were beyond belief. 
The picture you see up on the screen right now is of the Ishtar Gate. This is the actual gate that archaeologists have uncovered that is contained in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. It's been carried away and reconstructed there. Now, it was part of a larger structure. This is one of many gates into the city of Babylon. And you see this this beautiful uh, city and the, the fortifications. And this is what Babylon looked like. It's an artist's rendition. You think of how beautiful our river walk is. Well, this is the river walk in Babylon, right? You have temples, this, this ziggurat that they're building. You see these canals that provided water and various things. This is the, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the hanging gardens in Babylon. So you see the scope of the beauty, the grandeur of this city. And so here you have these four young men along with other captives who have been brought into the city and, and they're there at the very place of power. They're in the palace and they're told, you guys get to be a part of all of this. I want you to put yourself in that situation for a moment and think about the luxury, the power, the prestige that's being offered to you and ask yourself, would you be tempted to compromise who you are, to compromise uh, your following the true God in order to follow the gods of Babylon, in order to be a part of all of this. And as this is being dangled before you, I want you to remember that it's happening when you're a teenager because we read in the text they are youths. They're, they're 15 years old, most scholars will tell us at this point in their life. And so you have these 15-year-old boys who are brought into this, this place and, and they're told that you can, you can have all of this. And as you think about being tempted, remember you're separated from everything you know. You've been carried away from your home. Your parents are not there. You're on your own and in this place. How will Daniel and his friends be able to stand up to temptation like this? Part of the answer, as we're about to see, is they had already predecided. They were individuals who said, we know who we are, we know who we follow, we know what we want to be and what we're going to do. One of the lessons I've taught my kids is you have to pre-decide in life. It's too late when you find yourself in the heat of the moment to decide where are your boundaries, where are the lines you won't cross. I just dropped my uh, oldest off at Texas A&M yesterday for another year of college, and she's off on her own, you know. She's been taught by mom and dad Uh, She knows what it means to be a believer. She knows what it means to live her life for God, but she's on her own, and she has to make decisions based upon who she is and what she's going to do. I tell my kids, before you're on a date, uh, it's too late then to decide uh, if you're in the heat of the moment snuggling on a couch or in the backseat of the car. Now, I've also told my kids you shouldn't be in either of those places, right? But I said, if you find yourself in one of those places, it's a little late to pre-decide where are the boundaries, what lines will you not cross. Friends, when you are called into the corner office and your boss or supervisor is there and says, I want you to compromise, I want you to cut corners, I want you to cheat on this, this order, when you find yourself in the pressure of a test, it's too late then to decide where are the, where are the boundaries, where are the lines. You have to pre-decide. And so here, this is what we find with Daniel and these other young men. They had determined in advance what their values were and that God's word would be the guidebook that would lead them. And so as they faced this temptation and the others that we're going to see as we go throughout this book, they were able to say, we will not yield. Now, a big part of the predetermined decisions they had made and the ability to follow through was based upon the foundation of their faith. 
And we see that from their names. It tells us even though they're now separated from their parents, even though they've been carried away from uh, Judah, they are now uh, in a place in a pagan culture, separated from everything, but internally in their head and their heart, they knew God. They knew his word. We see this from their name. The name Daniel means God is my judge. And as they are brought into this new culture in Babylon, they change his name to say, your name is now Belshazzar, which means literally may Baal protect his life. Baal was one of the Canaanite deities. He was the chief pagan god in this culture. Hananiah's name meant Jehovah has been gracious. But in Babylon, they mocked him. And they said, how has God been gracious to you? How is God taking care of you? By letting you be carried away into captivity? They said, listen, you need a new God. You need a God who can do something for you. So they changed his name uh, to Shadrach, which means command of a coup. Uh, this was the moon god there in Babylon. The name Mishael means who is he that is God. And he too was told, why are you following this god who can do nothing for you? Follow a coup. Uh, his name Meshach means who is what a coup is. And then Azariah, whose name meant Jehovah, is my help, was told, Jehovah can't do anything for you. But if you will become Abednego, a name that means the servant of Nebo, Another one of the Babylonian gods, Nebuchadnezzar's name has Nebo as the root in it. They're told this is who you need to follow. As we're talking about what's being done to these young men, it made me think about uh, milk and how milk is processed. Now, if you've ever had fresh whole milk, you know it looks something like this. That's not sour milk at the top. If you've ever been at a farm where you get the real stuff that's been unprocessed, that is whole milk, and it sits out, you know the cream will rise to the top. And that's why we talk about the cream of the crop. It's the, the good stuff that rises up to the top. And so when it comes to milk that most of us drink, we don't see this. Because as you look at the label on the cartons, it'll say things like this, pasteurized, homogenized milk. Now, what pasteurized means is that it's been heated. Uh, to kill the bacteria that's in it. And homogenized milk means it's been mixed together to keep the separation from happening. And as we're reading about Daniel and his friends here, they are the cream of the crop. They've been skimmed off the top. They've been brought into Babylon. And now what they say is, look, we're going to pasteurize you. We're going to homogenize you. We want to we kill off your faith. And so they put the pressure on. They bring the heat on. And, and so they're pasteurizing them. Then they say, we want to homogenize you. We want to mix you in. We're going to take away your distinctive Hebrew names that point to the God that you follow. And we're going to make you have names that say you're a follower of our gods. And this is what the world does to us as Christians. When we stand apart from the crowd, as we live in this culture, there's pressure that is put on you at school, at work, wherever you are, that says you need to quit being different. You need to quit being separated. You need to look like the rest of the world. You need to be mixed in. And they bring pressure to kill off our faith. They try to mix us in. You know, the Bible tells us to be in the world but not of the world. We're told that as believers that we don't separate ourselves out from the world, but we do stand uh, for God and we honor God and we show people what it means to be a follower of the true God in the world in which we live. God tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We can be in the world, but not of the world. We can live for God. We can stand for him. And as we're uh, not conformed to the ways of the world, but we live for God, we can change the world around us. And this is what Daniel and his friends will do. As we look at him here, he refuses to be homogenized. He says, I'm not going to be blended in. Verse 8 tells us, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. You see, the Babylonians could change where Daniel lived. They could move him into Shinar. They could change his name. They could change everything externally about Daniel, but they couldn't touch what was inside, his, his head, his heart, his thoughts, the things that he did. He said, I will remain faithful. Uh, the reason Daniel says, I won't eat this food or drink is because it was against God's law. You'll remember that the Jewish dietary law said that there were uh, kosher things. There were foods that should not be eaten like pork. Uh, whether or not pork was actually put on the plate in front of Daniel, the food that was served to him, everybody knew had been offered to the, the, in the pagan temples to the fake gods. The wine had been libation offerings poured out, and now they're saying, drink this wine. And so what they're doing is saying, by, by drinking and eating this, you're showing your association with the pagan worship around us, which is why Daniel says, I'm not going to do it. Now, he could have gone along with the crowd. He could have said, I'm a 15-year-old kid in Babylon. And when in Babylon, do what the Babylonians do. Everybody else was doing it. Even all the other Jewish captives, aside from Daniel and his three friends that we're reading about here. But the reason Daniel doesn't do this is it says he made up his mind or he resolved that he would not defile himself. Now, this word resolve, that's translated to make up your mind, literally was a Hebrew word used to describe the making of a rope. If you've ever seen how rope is made, here's a, a section of rope that I've kind of unwound a little, and you'll see that there are these uh, three strands, and then that one strand on the right I've unraveled even further. And if you go in and you were to unravel each of those smaller fibers, you would find they were just threads. The, the threads are made when you take uh, fibers and you put them together and as they're rolled into a single thread and then you wrap other threads and more and more, you create the strength of a rope. If you just have the one little thread, you can snap it easily. That's why we say you're dangling by a thread. And what Daniel did was it says he resolved in his mind and his heart. He was a man who said, I'm building upon this and this and this. He knew God. He loved God. He was in his word. He prayed to God, as we're going to see through this book. And each of those things was adding fibers and threads and strands. Another thing that, that he does here is we see that he has his three friends that are around him. These are the, the uh, additional cords around us. We're, we're told in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. As you think about your life, what are you doing? What are the things that you've resolved in your heart and mind to follow God? How are the... How often are you in God's word? Each time you read the scripture, you're adding another strand, another thread to your rope. 
Each time you go to God in prayer, you're, you're building on, you're bulking up your rope. Who are the godly friends who are around you? Those that you stand with or who support you so that you have others who can support and strengthen you. Uh, these are the things that Daniel was doing. He had these three other young men around him that he could encourage and stand with and, and, and encourage them to stand for God. And this is why Hebrews 10.25 tells us, do not forsake our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Many of us know what it's like in quarantine when we weren't able to gather. We've been gathering physically here at Wayside for several months now back, and many are continuing to worship with us online. And, and we understand that some cannot come because of uh, vulnerabilities or you're not yet comfortable coming into gatherings. And that's, that's wonderful because right now what you're doing is still gathering together. You're reading God's word. You're hearing it taught and you're being strengthened. But as you look around this room, for those of you who are here, isn't this wonderful to see other Christians? To be able to say, I'm not alone. Yeah, you can clap. To say, I'm not alone. Because as you watch the news, as you think about the things, people are in isolation and they don't know. Uh, they don't have this support and strengthening. It's why Hebrew says encourage one another. The word literally means to spur one another on. And so it helps us to see we're not alone. And what the world likes to do is isolate us. As Christians, it comes in and it wants to cut the cords. It wants to tear down the strands and cut the cords of our convictions. So it's important to be adding to the rope of our resolve. If you can't gather with other Christians like this, find ways to do it online. We've been doing that all through the summer with devotionals and teaching and children's ministry online. Our student ministry has had wonderful online teaching as well as our men's and women's. But we're moving back into more and more opening up. We'll be sending out an additional set of um, kind of a, a further plan to y'all. But one of the things that we're doing, we've already been adding in some, you know, one and done type of activities for various ministries. Well, coming after Labor Day, our student ministry is going to begin meeting again physically here at the 410 campus over in Fellowship Hall. The middle school and high school students are going to be gathering in Fellowship Hall, socially distanced, and bringing them back on campus. And we're starting with our oldest kids, and we'll be working down. As schools are beginning to open up more, we have plans as to how to stay, stair step into some of the other younger ministries. I know for many of the parents worshiping at home, it's just too hard to be here with all the little kids and running around and managing that. And, and we miss having our children here. And so we're, we're working on plans to safely uh, bring them together and, and, and volunteers are needed to come in, you know, and people are fearful. Can I be in a room with kids who don't know how to socially distance? So those are some things. We're adding men's and women's Bible studies back midweek here uh, physically on our campus, and those are going to be on a rotating basis. People are asking, well, what about ABFs? When can those meet? And some of that is tied to child care as well as the amount of rooms and space that we can socially distance and sanitize between services like we do here. So there's a whole bunch of things that are happening that complicate these. Uh, so thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for being here and, and being a part of this. There are a number of churches in our city and certainly across the U.S. who have not even opened back up and are meeting in person. So if you can't gather physically with people, find ways uh, to strengthen and encourage one another. This is what Daniel was doing. 
And it's why at such a young age that he's able to stand for his faith because at a young age he had spent time learning God's word and, and his law when he was back in Israel. So when he's far from home as he faces this situation, he's strong enough to say, I choose to honor God rather than to give in to the temptation. In verses 9 through 16, we see that as Daniel honors God, God in return honors Daniel. It says, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence, in the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and he kept giving them vegetables. Now, some will read this, and they they try to diminish God's supernatural intervention here. They say, well, they're eating healthy, and we should all be eating healthy, right? Most of us can do a better job of that, myself included. But as you think about what's happening here, uh, 10 days is a very short window to see such you know, amazing results with these, these young men in comparison. Uh, not only do they look better, but they're fatter. And most of us don't go on a diet of vegetables and water to gain weight, and that's what's happening here. These other people are eating meat and high-calorie food and drinking wine, and it says that these, these four youths who are honoring God are, are looking better and fatter than everybody else. And what's happening here is Daniel is seeing the meaning of his Hebrew name lived out. Remember his name? God is my judge. And God says to these pagan officials, you look at us and you judge our appearance. And what God has done is is intervene on their behalf and allow them uh, to look better as they honor God. I want you to think about your own life for a minute. How many times have you honored God? and decisions you've made? How many times have you done the things that God has asked and seen God intervene on your behalf, bless you, or come through in some ways you trusted him? In verses 17 through 20, we're told, and as these four use, as, and as for these four use, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of all of them, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. We saw back in verse 3 that Nebuchadnezzar was preparing these four young men for positions of responsibility in the royal court. But we're told here in verse 17, it's actually God who prepared them by giving them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and of wisdom. 
And for Daniel, who had led the way in standing for God, God gave him the extra uh, ability, uh, the gift of being able to understand dreams and visions, something we're going to see all throughout the book of Daniel that was used in amazing ways. As we're talking about Daniel and these, these three others here who are standing for God, what about us? How many of us would say we're like Daniel and his friends? How many of us would say we're willing to do as Daniel did and stand for God in the midst of a godless culture, even if it can cost us? Are you willing to dare to be a Daniel, to take a stand for God in the places that he has you? Now, as you do, I want you to hear this clearly. I'm not promising you that God is going to do for you what he did for Daniel that we're reading about here. We're told that Daniel receives promotions. He's, he's given a place in the administration. And it, it may be that you're thinking, well, I'm going to stand for God, so he's going to make me successful at school. He's going to put me in that, that place on the team that I've been trying for. I'm going to get that promotion. You know, God does that over and over and over, but there are also times he doesn't. And you're saying, well, Roger, that's not very encouraging. I was, I was hoping you would promise me health, wealth, and prosperity. If I do everything the Bible says, then my life is going to be blessed. There will be no challenges, and I'll have everything. God doesn't always do that. Sometimes the opposite happens. It costs us an earthly promotion or a place on a team. But even if that were to happen, I want you to remember this. What you gain far outweighs what you lose here on earth. What is to come for us in heaven is nothing. Uh, The earthly things are nothing to be compared with what is to come for us in heaven. Beyond any long-term heavenly rewards, you also gain peace of mind here on earth by being able to look in a mirror and say, "I I can look at myself in the mirror and know I was a person of integrity, a man or a woman who stood for my convictions. I didn't compromise. I didn't give up. I didn't play the game the world's way by cutting corners or cheating in school. And while you may not gain the things the world offers, you will gain so many things, not only eternally, but even what the Bible tells us in in Psalm 119, verses 98 through 100. It says, Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed thy precepts. Daniel and his friends dared to stand for God, and he blessed them, yes, here on earth. But as we're going to see as we go through the book, there were challenges. Some of these guys get thrown into a fiery furnace. Some of these guys have uh, their, their names slandered all throughout. They're constantly attacking and going after Daniel and his friends because they stand for God, but God was faithful every step of the way. And as you think about your life today and the world in which we live, God is looking for others of us to dare to be a Daniel, to stand for him in the world in which we live, in a time and a culture where God is not honored. And as we look at the final verse of chapter 1, verse 21 says, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Now that one little line is packed full of meaning. Because what it tells us is Daniel served for 70 years. As we go through the book of Daniel, remember right now he's there under King Nebuchadnezzar. Next we're going to sing King Belshazzar, then Darius, and then Cyrus. And what this is telling us is God took Daniel 
And he put him in the administrations of four different pagan kings over a period of 70 years. And as Daniel chose to honor God, the king of kings, God honored Daniel before four pagan kings. He gave him places of honor and leadership for 70 years. And ultimately, what he also did, as this line tells us, is give Daniel the the privilege of seeing the fulfillment of the prophecy where God would return the, the Jewish people back to the land. Daniel was carried away into captivity at the beginning as a 15-year-old in the fulfillment of a prophecy. And then he lives long enough to watch the fulfillment of the end of the captivity where God returns the Jews to the land of Israel. Daniel was faithful to God. And God was faithful to him and his friends. And so again, I'll ask you as we come to a close, are you willing to be a man or woman, a boy or a girl, who is faithful to follow the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? to stand for God in a culture in a time where following God is, is not uh, honored, in a time where it can be costly, knowing that God will be faithful to you as you do so. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and still in ministering to the saints. And so as you live for the Lord, God will honor you. God will take care of you. There may be challenges in the world in which we live, but ultimately, uh, God will reward you. Whether it's here on earth, ultimately in heaven, we know we will receive those, and those rewards last for all eternity. So as we end today, I want you to consider what we've talked about. I want you to go home today and to think about where God has you in your workplace, your home life, the school you may be returning to as things are opening back up. And ask yourself, will you stand for God? Will you dare to be a Daniel in the world in which we live? Will you join me, please, as we go to God in prayer? Lord God, we are living in dark and difficult times. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to be faithful followers of you. To be those who live our lives for the Lord, even if it's going against the culture, even if it's swimming upstream in the world in which we live. Father, would you help us to be like Daniel and these other young men we're reading about? Would we stand for you and would we point others to you? God, we know you can be trusted to take care of us. And we know that you are faithful, not only in this lifetime, but in the one to come to reward us. As we saw in Hebrews 6.10, you are faithful not to forget our work and the love which we have shown toward you in your name. So would we stand for you? Would we dare to be a Daniel? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.